0: Hello fellow survivors and welcome to another episode of At the End of the Line, a rail tour of post-apocalyptic England. I'm your host and amateur ex Richard Oliver. In the last episode we visited a new town. At first the townspeople were quite hostile to us and then at a meeting in their town hall we were told we were their prisoners and attacked by mysterious figures who seemingly couldn't be harmed, could walk through walls and could cause terrible injuries by the slightest touch. I had left the story with the representatives from the train surrounded by these figures who were held temporarily at bay by the man seemingly in charge of this town, Leyland. So far the only one of our group to actually be attacked was Sophia, who were merely tapped by one of these blurry figures, collapsed and within seconds developed terrible lesions. What happened to her? I demanded of Leyland, but he did not seem too concerned and told me it had only been a minor dose of radiation and she will recover in a few hours. Radiation? What radiation? Leland gestured to the blurry figures surrounding us. My friends here. Well, they were the victim of an unfortunate accident in the bunker, and they are slightly radioactive, amongst other things. I looked at the strange people. Most of them wore overalls with various badges and insignia. All of the colour seemed to be drained from their images. They had individual features, but they were blurred, so nothing was very clear. And at the edges they became less fixed as if cells were drifting away from them into space. Leyland slowly made his way towards us, the blurry figures parted for him and he looked at Sophia. Hopefully this will be the last time this will be an issue and we will get along better in the future he said. It was then that one of our soldiers pointed his gun at Leyland. Presumably thinking that while the blurry figures weren't vulnerable that didn't seem to be the case with him, Leyland stared back at the soldier and simply asked him what he thought would happen if he pulled the trigger. The answer was obvious. We'd all be killed. But the soldier didn't lower his gun until Captain Alou ordered him to. Leyland turned back to the townspeople. None of them had moved, but I could see they looked horrified, and several people were crying quietly. I shall let the others explain the deals to you, Leyland said, and walked off stage and out the building. As soon as he was at the door, the blurry figures left, each of them heading off in a different direction, walking through walls and vanishing. As soon as we were alone, a few of the townspeople rushed forward, including Jackie, the woman who had originally greeted us with a double-barrel shotgun. They pushed their way through the crowd to look at Sophia, and none of us stopped them. They knelt down beside her and looked over her lesions. I think she'll be okay, said Jackie. It's hard to tell, but it doesn't look too severe. How do you know? asked Martina, one of these central government authority officials of us. We've seen a lot of this, said Jackie sadly. We carefully moved Sophia back to the building we had spent the night in and made her as comfortable as possible. The townspeople started to leave when Martina Rossi demanded to be told the story and Jackie agreed. The army bunker that we had seen on the maps and we had all believed had been abandoned long before the apocalypse had actually been still in use when the apocalypse started. It had been a very secret weapons testing lab, the sort of secret that people got killed over. What exactly had gone on there remained something of a mystery. But from what the townspeople have been able to work out, it was something to do with firing missiles through walls. Not blasting through, having them pass through and leaving the wall intact. If it worked, it would be one hell of a weapon. And it would seem they were, at least in some way, successful. When the apocalypse started, the personnel in the bunker were quite lucky. They were well supplied with everything they could need. They even had a small nuclear reactor to be used in experiments. So, they were optimistic. They were so hopeful and generous of spirit that they recorded the radio transmission that had brought us here, encouraging survivors to come for aid. And people did. The military personnel shared their supplies and energy they had. The newcomers helped build the town. The newcomers, however, weren't allowed in the bunker. And when they understood a little about what had been going on there, they were quite happy about that state of affairs. The magic word, radiation, was good at keeping people at a distance, but it did mean there were always two distinct groups. The military personnel in the bunker and the townspeople. Inevitably there were some disagreements between the two groups but these were solved without resort to violence. However the simmering tensions remained. Then there was the accident. None of the townspeople could tell us exactly what had happened. One morning there was a loud explosion and then several smaller ones all coming from the bunker. Everyone had rushed out of their homes to see what was going on but none of them daring to get close to it. There was a frantic discussion about what to do and when one of them suggested going down into the bunker to see if they could help, no one else agreed. Nevertheless, this one person went in alone. The townspeople anxiously waited to see what would happen and it didn't take long for someone to point out that well maybe they didn't want the people from the inside the bunker getting out and spreading the radiation or whatever it was. So reluctantly they decided to seal the door to the bunker telling themselves Everyone inside was probably already dead. There was only one person from the bunker who had avoided the disaster. Someone who happened to be in a relationship with one of the townspeople. That person had argued the hardest about not going to help. That was Jackie. She had been one of the civilian scientists employed by the military, but had started a relationship with one of the townspeople. She knew what the dangers could be and urged immediate action. The loss of the bunker dramatically changed the lives of the townspeople. There was no electricity or supplies of food and medicine, but they managed to survive. Weeks passed and people almost forgot about the bunker and what they'd done. Then the noises started. The faint banging on the door that some people claimed they couldn't hear. And then one morning, they were just there, standing in the middle of the town. They were drained of colour and looked sort of indistinct and blurry, but they were unmistakably the personnel from the bunker. They didn't say anything, they just stood there. They ignored everyone, and when someone tried to shake them, their hands went straight through them. For hours, they did nothing, and then as one, they pointed at the bunker door. At first, no one did anything, but they stood for 18 hours, pointing, and eventually it became too much. The townspeople opened the door to the bunker, and there was the one person who had gone in to help the military personnel. Timothy Leyland. And he had not looked good. In fact, he had looked close to death. Not knowing what else to do, they cared for Leyland, and he slowly regained strength. In a couple of days, he was able to speak, albeit only a few words at a time. In several weeks, he could walk, and after two months, well, he wasn't like his old healthy self, but he was as healthy as he was going to get. Throughout his convalescence, the strange blurry figures stayed close to Leyland, rotating their careful watch of him, never speaking or interacting with anyone else. Nobody dared to investigate the bunker and see what had happened down there. As Leyland improved and was able to communicate more easily with the townspeople, it quickly became apparent that he was very angry with them. And everyone felt guilty. They had done a bad thing, they knew it. He was right to be angry. But still, they were surprised by the terrible vengeance he took. As I've said many times before, the apocalypse has been an excellent motivator for people. And as this week's episode is about the dangers of cutting-edge weapons, I thought I could run through some of the more extraordinary weapons and defenses invented in the apocalypse. I know I have discussed doomsday devices in the past, and I will assure you, none of these weapons are quite so destructive. Coming out of the colder areas of Russia we have the KVK 420, a devastating weapon and frankly sickening when seen in action. It freezes blood, A directed energy beam is fired at the target, and in a matter of seconds every drop of blood in their body freezes, with an explosion of red icicles breaking through the skin. Death is very quick, but one imagines extremely painful. The weapon was originally designed to destroy zombies, but when used against them, it just created especially gross zombies. Designed in what must have been one of the more macabre weapons laboratories in existence, the M43 Sensory Hijacking Device was invented, but known to everyone as the Spider. Note to listeners, that is spider, spelled S-P-Y-D-E-R. These small robotic creatures look a lot like spiders, and burrow into the central nervous system of the target, and relay the sensory information being sent to the brain, allowing the controller of the spider access to what the target sees and hears. Unfortunately, the spider's usefulness is undercut by the fact that, in entering the body and carrying out its functions, it causes terrible agony, alerting the target to the presence of the spider, a weapon designed to terrorize your enemy into submission was made in Japan, and this weapon is notoriously unreliable. It was a sophisticated mind-hacking device that allowed you to implant crippling phobias into another person's mind. You could make them terrified of anything. But the use of the weapon showed that fear affects everyone differently, and as often as soldiers were used to quivering wrecks hiding in storage closets, they became trigger-happy maniacs shooting anything and everything that cast a shadow. We all know how vaccines work, well at least some of us do. A weakened form of a virus is introduced to an organism that gives it a chance to develop the antibodies needed to fight off the virus. When the organism subsequently encounters the virus, the necessary antibodies already exist and the virus easily defeated. The Kincaid weapon was a designer virus that could analyse your immune system and disable specific antibodies. Sometimes the Kincaid weapon was used before a specific attack to weaken enemy soldiers, and sometimes it was used against the general population to cause as much suffering as possible. The Kincaid weapon was devastatingly effective, and while the central government authority has banned its use and claims to have destroyed every last trace of it, some rogue warlords still threaten to use it. The city of Syracuse in New York State was placed under a brutal siege for two years by General Rebecca Maddox, an extremely powerful warlord. The city suffered a great deal and was eventually defeated, but their defense of the city is a stuff of legend. The city's defense was led by the polymath philosopher Arthur Chase, who, despite having no military experience, constantly outwitted Maddox. Chase came up with numerous weapons and defenses, such as an electromagnetic catalyst that caused gunpowder to explode, landmines that could chase people, and terrifyingly elaborate wolf holes. Chase also devised completely unique tactics which bamboozled and terrified the attackers who became so scared of Chase and his outside of the box tactics that when part of the city walls collapsed they assumed it was a trap and did nothing. Chase's most impressive weapon and one that no one else has been able to replicate was the velocity trap. This was an energy shield that slowed items that were fired at it from one direction but sped up those fired at it from the other direction. What this meant in practice was that bullets fired at the city were slowed down so much so they simply dropped out of the air, while a defender could throw a rock at the shield and have it hurtling at hundreds of miles an hour at an attacker. Back to the narrative. The now recovered Leyland had asked to address the whole town and they agreed, and his furious speech about betrayal was not exactly a shock. Few people had noticed the blurry figures that slowly surrounded the townspeople, and when Leyland had announced a sacrifice, people were more bemused than anything else. Some even laughed. Then Leyland had demonstrated his power. He pointed to one outspoken critic and a blurry figure moved towards the man, simply walking through chairs as if they weren't there. The critic had risen from his chair, shaken by the impossibility of what he was seeing, and backed away. The blurry figure reached him and swung its arm out, passing through the chest of the man. The effect was immediate. He collapsed to his knees, wrapped by coughs which grew continually worse, until they suddenly stopped. The man was dead. Leyland rattled off a list of demands, which amounted to, essentially, him being placed in charge of the town. But even worse was the sacrifice he demanded. There were things that needed to be done in the bunker. Dangerous things. Poisonous things perhaps even deadly things. The blurry figures couldn't do it and Leyland said he had already done too much and his body was now too weak to survive. Somebody would have to go down into the bunker and do this work. Anyone sent down never came back. There had been attempts at rebellion or escape and all had failed and only resulted in more death, more suffering. Around half the population of the town had went down into the bunker and died. Just over a hundred people. Occasionally new people arrived, some by chance, others led there by the message the soldiers had set up and Leyland kept running to lure more people. Some time ago the townspeople had decided to not let anyone else get caught into this horror. It was their mistake and their cowardice that had caused this problem and they chased away anyone who came along. Sometimes it worked, other times Leyland happened to be there and it interrupted. When they had finished telling their story, I was stunned and a little hopeless. And no one has managed to escape, I asked. Jackie shook her head sadly. She was the closest thing to an expert there wasn't the blurry figures, and she had come up with various plans over the years, and none of them had worked. I don't mean to be rude, I said to Jackie. Why hasn't Leyland killed you? He's making me watch, she said. He's making me suffer. Jackie explained that the first person who had been sent down into the bunker had been the man she had loved. So there's no hope, I asked. We're just stuck here getting whittled down by the radiation. And then Jack explained that there was hope. The blurry figures needed huge amounts of energy to survive, which they were draining out of the weapons they had built in the bunker. Eventually, they would run out of weapons and they would starve. Whatever work it was that Leyland had people doing in the bunker, they were releasing this energy. I estimate it'll take somewhere between nine months and five years to drain all the weapons, and I want as many of us to survive as possible. It's just a waiting game. That was not a game I wanted to play. We have to get out of here, I said. Which was a sentiment everyone agreed with, but felt it lacked details. Can't we contact the train for help? Asked Clark Olsen, the representative of the Phoenix Foundation. I closed my eyes and cursed the newcomer silently. We didn't tell people about the train until we felt they were ready. A lot of people viewed the train with envious eyes. We had learned this from experience. When Jackie had asked what he meant he began to spill out information and the rest of us felt there was little point in discretion and we explained the train to Jackie. I doubt you could get a message to them said Jackie. The interference from the radiation stops most transmissions. The transmitter Leyland uses was specially designed to get through and that's patchy at best. But Captain Lou burst that bubble when she explained that the train wouldn't come to help us even if we could get a message out. As a rule they don't do rescue missions. We spent the rest of the day trying to work out some plan. We asked Jackie about the capabilities of the blurry figures and the possibility of making it to the train before they caught up to us. Using maps rescued from the bunker, we worked out the location of the train and how fast it would take us to get there, planning different routes and different means of transportation. None of it was going to work. Exhausted and dejected, we gave up as it grew dark. I slept even less the second night. I stayed by Sophia who was shown signs of improvement but still desperately needed a doctor. When it was morning I decided to go and see Jackie to see if some new plan could be hatched to save us. I spotted her striding towards the bunker, her double barrel shotgun in her hands and I hurried to catch up. Jackie, we need to talk I said. She ignored me and kept walking and suddenly fired the shotgun into the air and shouted for Leyland. I put my hand on her shoulder and she snapped round and hit me with the butt of her gun. I doubled over and fell slowly to the ground. Jackie, said Leyland calmly, that's not how we treat each other in this town. You should apologize to the newcomer. I could see that Leyland enjoyed the power he had over Jackie and the rest of us. Jackie ignored his order and pointed back at me. They have a nuclear reactor on their train. It could keep your friends alive for decades. Leyland walked out of the bunker and towards Jackie. I would say he moved a little faster than normal. You can have it, Jackie said. Just leave us alone. She pulled out a map from her pocket and gave it to Leyland. I've marked on the map where the train is. Leyland looked at the map in his hands in silence. He then looked at me. Is she right? Do you have a nuclear reactor? I said nothing and Jackie strode over to me and pointed the shotgun in my face. Tell him! She yelled and I still said nothing. She hit me with, with the shotgun again in the face. I fell to the ground feeling blood pouring from my nose. Something cold and metallic was pressed against my face again was the shotgun. She's she's right, said Clark Olsen rushing over. Yes, there's a new nu- nuclear reactor. Just just don't shoot him. Satisfied, Jackie moved the shotgun but kept it trained on us while Leyland fought this over. Ultimately, Clark's intervention was necessary as I was about to confess everything to Leyland. I am certainly not someone who can stand up to torture or even mild discomfort really. I shall consult with my friends, Leyland said. And a moment later, they were there surrounding him. He stepped out of the group and towards Jackie and placed a hand on her shoulder. Well, you've saved your town, and doomed hundreds, maybe thousands of other people. Just think, with a nuclear reactor on a train, we can go anywhere. The blurry figures had already vanished, presumably rushing to the train. Jackie stepped away from Leyland and levelled a shotgun at him. For a moment, he seemed confused, and then Jackie fired. She didn't even check to see whether or not Leyland was dead. But carried on towards the bunker. I got to my feet and looked at Leyland. He was definitely dead. I couldn't work out what Jackie was doing and I stumbled forward and then I saw the map Jackie had given Leyland. It was wrong. Well as a map it was perfectly accurate but the location I gave for the train was wrong. I heard after Jackie grabbing her just at the entrance of the bunker. What are you doing? You and your people should get out of here she said. Get to your train and leave. Are you going into the bunker? I asked her. I'll destroy whatever is left of the weapons, it'll take a couple of hours for them to realise the map is no good, and then they'll come back. Their food will be gone, and they won't have long left to live, and they will be angry. I can't imagine that they'll have enough energy to come after you, but they might, so you should get out of here quickly. I looked through the entrance to the bunker, to the stairs leading down, and the nightmarish radiation to be found there. Jackie wasn't going to come back. What about your people? I asked. They'll scatter. By tomorrow it'll all be over and they can come back, if they want to. Jackie looked down into the bunker. Listen, I don't have time to talk. If they get back before I'm done, things will get really bad. She put her shotgun on the ground and took a deep breath and rushed into the bunker. I felt jittery just underneath the bunker. The thought of invisible radiation poisoning my body was too much to take. I hurried back to my group telling them we had to leave immediately. Now fellow survivors, this episode's instalment of the popular segment, Who's On Board? I was recently made aware of the so-called Curse of the Interview, in which fans of this show have put about a theory that taking part in Who's On Board leads to terrible tragedy. Of the previous interviewees, 11 have died, 6 more have suffered terrible, if not fatal, accidents, one more has been possessed by a parasitic monster, and another has been trapped in an ever repeating 5 minute loop of time. While I cannot deny these figures, I mean this is an example of confusing correlation and causation. Anyway, today I'm interviewing Johanna von Strayd, who is our official cartographer. Good morning, Johanna. Good morning, Richard. Thank you for making the time to talk to us. Well, you're welcome. I know you have a very busy schedule.
1: Yes, lots of work. Very busy.
0: Now, some of our old listeners will remember the days before the apocalypse and the maps we had then, and not just maps. Satellite photographs, street view computer applications, sonic graphs, and more.
1: Yes, we were rather spoiled back then. Very accurate, though, very precise.
0: And the maps you've been making while you've been on board, are you saying they're not as accurate? (laughs) God, no. But they're accurate enough, surely, to be useful?
1: Mm, I'd say they were useful, but not in a geographical sense. You have to remember, Richard, yes, that any map that has ever been drawn contains biases within it things people are trying to say. A map is a way of showing your version of the world, yes? Maps were drawn and made rich countries larger and poor countries smaller. Few people have made maps for the general population that showed them an accurate picture of the world.
0: But what then, I mean, say is, well, I wanted to show me where stuff is.
1: That's a common mistake to think that that's what maps are for. Maps show you your place in the world, Richard. It shows you boundaries.
0: Well, can I see one of the maps you've been working on? Right, I mean, first impressions. There's not much detail, is there? It's very vague. And I would have thought the fact that the geography of Europe has changed so much would be very interesting for you. A new challenge. Have you seen the old
1: maps? The really old ones? I think so, yes. And you saw the dragons, yes? And sea monsters? Yes. They put those there to scare people. They were on the edges of maps. Those maps didn't tell you how to get somewhere. They told you that it was dangerous out there.
0: And that's what your maps do?
1: Yes, they encourage people not to travel. Can I address the listeners directly? Okay. Please don't travel. If you're safe where you are, don't leave. And if you're not safe, well, travel, but a map will only take you to other unsafe places.
0: I'm stunned to hear that coming from you of all people. A little while ago, I had Katya, the head chef, on the show, and she shared some very good trade secrets on preparing nutritious and delicious food in the post-apocalypse. She didn't tell people not to eat.
1: Well, I think maps are a little bit more important than food.
0: But surely the entire point of this journey, of what we're doing here on this train, is to learn. I don't want to get all romantic about it, but we're explorers. You can learn
1: all you want. Be romantic. You'll be just as dead.
0: Moving on... Hmm. Most of my questions relied on you wanting to make accurate maps. Uh, let's let's try this. In purely terms of drawing the maps, which is the most interesting place that you visited?
1: Well, providing people don't take it as a suggestion to go there.
0: Absolutely. Listeners, don't go there.
1: I'd have to say the western coast of Scandinavia. In the old days, it was all fjords and crinkly coastline, and now it's very uniform. Almost a straight line.
0: I would have thought that would make it. Less interesting, especially to a cartographer. It's certainly quicker to draw. Point taken. So, by your own admission, your maps are not accurate. And you don't want them to be accurate. What do you want done with them?
1: I want them to form part of the basis of the new international curriculum stressing the danger we now live in.
0: So you see them as one part of a large project?
1: Yes, very much so. For thousands of years, humans have been curious. We have been explorers. Curiosity will kill us now. We are cats. Cats? Yes, the expression. Curiosity killed the cat. We are now cats.
0: Johanna, forgive me, but I don't really understand why you're part of the team.
1: I didn't want to be. As you know, many of us were forced to accept a position on the train, at gunpoint even.
0: And I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. Thank you again, Johanna, for some very interesting insights about maps. It was slow going and not just because of me this time. We'd rigged a sort of hammock to transport Sophia, who while getting better all the time was still far too weak to walk. Every couple of minutes I couldn't help but look behind us to check if the blurry figures were chasing us. Captain Alu unhelpfully pointed out that we would probably only know they were there when it was too late. And she was right. There was a shock cry of alarm and then one of the soldiers collapsed. Everyone spun round and looked at the fallen person only to see he was already dead his skin covered in the lesions that afflicted Sophia. Standing over the body was one of the blurry figures, with more slowly coming into view. Their condition seemed to have deteriorated even further, and all identifying features were gone, remaining little more than fuzzy shapes. I could only assume they were running out of energy. There had been a brief discussion about what should be done if the figures caught up to us, and the best plan anyone could come up with was to split up and run away in as many di- different directions as possible. Despite the simplicity of this plan, most of us utterly failed to carry it out. The soldiers all went for their guns, despite the knowledge that they were useless. This was either because of years of battle-hardened instincts to go for their weapons, or that they wanted attention on them rather than the civilians. The only soldiers who didn't do this were the two who were carrying Sophia, who thankfully took off as fast as they could. As for me and the other civilians, we just panicked. The soldiers fired Emptying their weapons at the figures to absolutely no effect. It is a scary thing to see literally thousands of bullets do zero damage to an attacker. Captain Luce shouted orders as the figures closed in, their hands reaching out for the soldiers. The figures simply pressed forward, walking through them, and the soldiers dropped dead as they did. I think I would have died there had it not been for Clark Olsen, the representative of the Phoenix Foundation. There was a blinding flash of light, as Lawson set off a flare, simply to get our attention. That done, he simply yelled for us to run. And finally, we did. As I ran, I desperately tried to do complicated sums in my head, to work out whose energy would give out first. The blurry figures are mine. The figures always just walked, moving slowly, but relentlessly forward. Passing through any obstacle. In a straight race, a person would easily outrun them. But outside of roads and pavement, it would never be a straight race. I stumbled over rocks and collided with trees in a mad scramble that put as much distance between me and the figures as possible. Eventually I stopped, heart racing and taking in massive gulping breaths. I looked back the way I came. I could see several of the figures slowly advancing towards me. For a moment the nightmare further exercise outweighed the fear of death but it passed and I went back to running. I burst into a clearing and was overjoyed to see the train. I staggered forward and collapsed against it. I turned round to see the blurry figures. The nearest one only a few feet away and it reached out a hand. I could feel an odd sensation of heat and pressure against my skin, but then it stopped and turned away from me, looking towards the front of the train. Suddenly it had no interest in me and started moving towards the reactor, followed by the few remaining blurry figures. I breathed a sigh of relief and watched the figures go. They were barely visible anymore, Hazy the outlines that seemed to be moving even slower than normal. One of the figures stopped, its image flared brightly for a second, and then it was gone. Within seconds, two more flared brightly, disappeared. The last one had made it to reactor, and put its hand through the side of the train, and then flared brightly, and was gone. I shakily climbed onto the train, trying to find out who had survived. Over the next few hours, around half of the civilians made it back, and a handful of the soldiers. Captain Alou was lost to us, presumed dead. The soldiers who had been carrying Sophia had made it back with her. She was recovering in the medical bay. Concerned about my own exposure to whatever radiation came from the blurry figures, the doctors checked me over. The worst I had was something akin to sunburn. I'll leave it there for this episode, with me nursing only the most superficial of wounds, instead of facing a short and brutally cruel life ended by extreme radiation poisoning. At the End of the Line was written, performed and produced by Richard Oliver. Victoria Dubendorf is our audio engineer who works on making everything sound better. Find Victoria on Twitter at Tyrannatory. Our theme music is by Chip Michael. Find more of his music at soundcloud.com forward slash chipmichael. Chip is also part of the Tales of Stage and Savant podcast, which I highly recommend. In this week's episode, Johanna von Strayd was played by the amazingly talented Just G was also the creator and star of the Starless Podcast, a brilliant podcast everyone should listen to. Find the podcast on Twitter at StarlessPod. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate on iTunes. Follow the show on Twitter at PostApodPodcast. Anyone wanting to submit questions, ask for advice, or make urgent pleas for help should tweet us or send an email to at the, end of the line podcast at gmail.com. For more information on the show, please go to our website. At the squarespace.